Here we go on a Monday night. It's time for Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. A lot of fun to talk about. Ira is back after having a pretty busy couple of days. Ira, again, I think you pretty much took in experiences. Last week, you were probably the only person in the world to, to take the route that you did. And again, this week, I don't know many people who would have been at NBA Finals games at the U.S. Open and, and back. So congratulations on that. Well, the, I was lucky. They're both in Boston. But people made a comment. So you could have gone to a Red Sox game. That's impossible. You can't go to Red Sox. <laughs> but also, it was it was uh, the Red Sox were playing at the time. But uh, it was it was difficult in terms of I didn't want to go on Thursday because like NBA Finals, this is game six. I'm not going to go to the U.S. Open on Thursday, rush and go like you got, it's like rushing through a great meal. Like this is gonna, you know I'm going to enjoy. I'm going to get to the game early and enjoy it. Went there Friday and I told you you know it's when you go to these golf tournaments it's. I love going practice rounds, take pictures, Wednesday, those days. I love Thursdays. I love Fridays. It's hard to go to a big golf tournament like this on a Saturday and Sunday because you're with one group. And I don't like to go with different groups because you want to see what's happening. And that's on Sunday, you would have only been following Zala Terrace and Fitzpatrick and not follow Scheffler or you don't see what's happening. Maybe I would have been crazy and following Rory and not <laughs> seeing anything. So it's hard on Saturday and Sunday to go to these tournaments. So I do enjoy more the Thursdays and Fridays that I, to go to those things. I've done this before. Palm Beach, when it was at Pebble Beach, I went to the NBA Finals at Golden State Toronto, and then I went to the Pebble Beach tournament. So, yeah, it's not your first time do, doing yeah. that. But uh, I'm with you, and we, we talk about it a lot. Like, the Honda Classic on Wednesday is the best day. The, the pro, you know, the Pro-Am is, is the best day. Thursday, Friday are great. Yeah, on Sunday, it gets a little crazy. And, yeah, you're, you're kind of pinned into one guy. There's so, it's harder to get to the front. You know, you can't get up close and personal with anybody. We're going to talk more about the U.S. Open soon and how you got to pretty much go wherever you wanted. So I can't wait to hear about all this. Um, we're going to have Paul Westhead back on. We had him on uh, last week. He's an NBA Finals winning coach. And you, you did a long interview with him. We broke it up into two pieces. So what are we going to hear tonight? We're going to hear because I'm obsessed by Winning Time. It's a show on HBO which covers the Lakers of the Kareem. It was Magic Johnson's rookie season with Kareem and everything that happened. It's getting a lot in the press because I think it's extremely entertaining. The first couple episodes were crazy how they portrayed Jerry West. So he's going to say he's going to sue them. But if you watch it, you learn it's, it's really the, the start of the NBA Everything we see with the promotions, the marketing, or even hockey to anything. I mean, it, it was like that's how they started. Not just when Jerry Buss bought that team. It wasn't that they put together Showtime and this great a team, but it was all the business side. And I, you know how much I love the business side of sports? That It delves into that. And Jeannie Buss was just an intern at the time, but you could see how when her idea, like the one thing in the movies where she came up with this idea about the late, they had cheerleaders. And then they go, no, no, we don't want children. We want dancers. And they had Paul Abdul was the only one. that had 20 girls out there. And Paul Abdul was the only one who danced the way that she thought was that's what we should do. And now everything's <laughs> like that. So every time I go to these games, I, I, I thought of that. So, But Paul Westhead was the coach. Uh, he was and he was so we're going to have him on the show. Uh, he was he did not play himself on the show. He's going to talk about the things about the show and about the season. And, and I, I, I encourage people to watch it. It's a really entertaining uh, um, uh, TV. It's 10 part episode on HBO. So you can follow along with Ira on all his escapades across any form of social media at Ira on sports. Ira, we have a new NBA champion and it, well, not <laughs> new this year, but not new to the winner's circle. And we may have a dynasty reforming in the Golden State Warriors. Let's go back to game five. And, you know, we, last we spoke, it was 2-2. And a lot of people had the Celtics as the favorite to win from there. And I, you know, me and you really didn't think that way. Let's talk about what happened there. Well, that was, I mean... Again, we look after the series are over. People are like, "Oh, well, everybody thought." Of course, there. they were. Oh, Golden State was going, but no, it was it was one of those where the goal was two two, and you felt like, "Well, look, the Celtics can win on the road, and they never lose twice." Yeah, they never lose back to back games, and we saw them. And they, oh, they can look bad a couple games, but they'll figure it out. They're going to know what they're doing. We left the station, and then we saw in Golden State in terms of. Uh, what happened is that the Golden State start, I, I, the key to that game was they started out 14-4. Uh, they looked fantastic. Celtics were, were, were terrible. I mean, they couldn't even score. And then it was like 24-8 with two minutes left in the first quarter. And now we have another one of these type blowouts that we think. And then it was 27-16 at the end of one. And uh, Boston was 0 for 5 from the threes. They were, for the, they were 8 for 23 totally. It was horrendous. In the second quarter, I thought both teams played Bad. I mean, it was just Boston at that point was 0 for 12 on three point shots. They couldn't make anything. And the only one who played Curry after the great game four struggled in this game. Yeah. It looked like he was tired. But Andrew Wiggins came up big. 14.7 rebounds, played amazing in that, just in that for in the first half. So it was 51 39 at the halftime. The Warriors were 
3 of 17 from 3. 3 of 17. Boston was 3 of 15 from 3. Um, but the boards were even. And But Boston, this is something that was a theme the entire playoffs, nine turnovers. They're turnovers, and they weren't just – they were stupid turnovers. Tatum turning the ball over. Like, usually expect, like, a guard. I mean, it's just – the turnovers and, – and it was turnovers in set offenses, not even on fast break. So that was bad. And then um, – so at the halftime, Wiggins Curry only had 10 points. Draymond Green had a, eight points. Uh, and Gary Payton the second had seven points. Ben Tatum had 13 points. Uh, then I saw where Steph Curry changed his shoes. He had those crazy, uh, colorful shoes. The one game he changed his shoes, helped him a little in the third quarter. But Boston, you know, first of all, Golden State dominated these third quarters. But then Boston finally in another third quarter played really good. I mean, they were over 12 and they went nine for nine. Like something happened at half to, you know, halftime where they were probably shooting the entire time. And the Golden State was just becoming just a disaster. At one point, they were three for 24 from three. And Boston took a lead, uh, 66-61, and they came back. And then Clay Thompson hit this three, and then he had a then he had a four point play to make it 68-67. And then uh, Jordan Poole hit a three. Tatum threw an air ball. Payton hit a two, and then Poole at the end of the quarter had another three. Suddenly they're up 75-74. So they had blown this big lead. They were getting blown out. This was a chance they were going to lose at home. Everybody thought, and I think that. Almost changed the entire series. That play from Poole to uh, those two three-point shots from Poole, and when Tatum came down and shot that air ball, I thought that almost changed it because they, they, the Golden State lost the third quarter, 35-24, but it could have been much, much worse. And then in the fourth quarter, Steph Curry was out of the game, and the Warriors went on a huge start. Uh, it was a White. Derek White missed a terrible a shot, and Tatum walked. And then Clay hit a three. It was like 7-0 to start the quarter. And then Marcus Smart had a, a tactical, which was wrong. And then Poole scored another two points. So they had like a 10-0 run. And then Wiggins made another big play. So by that time, with, it was 91-79 with four minutes left, and it was over. And it was like, what was great about that game was that they needed Curry to win game four. They needed it. Otherwise, they'd be down 3-1. But then the rest of the team came and helped Curry when Curry was struggling. Mm -hmm. They played well in game five to win that. I mean, for field goal percentages, the Warriors were uh, nine for 40 from threes. But Boston was only 11 for 32. Uh, and in boards, Boston, this is the one game they out-rebounded, 47 to 39. But it is the turnovers. Boston had 18 turnovers. The Warriors had seven. And Tatum had probably the best game of the series at 27 points. Uh, but he had but he had a number of turnovers also. Jalen Brown had 18 points. And Smart had 20 points. But the Warriors, um, it was really Wiggins. 26 points, played great. Clay Thompson had 21. And uh, that was and Draymond Green, eight points, eight boards, six assists. So he wasn't getting the oh, 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 but he was getting some games. But that was, it, it just seemed like, but the key, I think, also was on the bench. Poole finally, he only played four, played 14 minutes of game action, but he was four for eight, three for six and three for 14 points, and Gary Payton had 15 points. So they got from their bench, from those, those two people, 29 points. And I, that, was the, that was, to me, that was the key. And that, and, and that so going back to Boston, I decided I'm going to go to Boston for game six. I <laughs> felt Golden State was going to win this. I saw a team in that fourth quarter. They did not fight back. They did not stand in the game. And I felt Golden State was going to win game six. You know what? After that game... I ended up telling a friend of mine, close the series out. Golden State's going to win. If you're the Celtics, you have to win the bad Steph Curry game. He's not going to be bad very often. you got to win the game where he's underperforming. And they didn't. And like you said, they got a lot of support from the bench, something that the Celtics really is non-existent from. So I had Against the Heat series, that bench, the White, White, Derek White, Grant Williams, Pritchard, they played well. But in this series... They didn't play well at all. I mean, I mean in, that, in that game, Grant Williams had three points, White had one point, and Pritchard had zero points. Yeah. They were getting nothing out of their bench, whereas against the Heat series, those, that bench was so great. Again, even the Milwaukee series, the bench was good. Yeah, and, and you know, the Heat have a, a nice rotation, too, so it's not like you know they're playing against scrubs. So heading back to Boston, you got a big uh, couple of days planned. What happens when you get there? Well, I flew up there, and I was nervous. The, this was a tough get ticket because I felt like it was going to go down in price because I've, but Boston, like, you don't want to be, nobody wants to be somewhere when the other team's going to clinch. But surprisingly, the ticket actually play, stayed, it didn't go down as much as I thought it would go down. So I was like nervous. I stayed at this Kimpton and I love walking to the stadium. So one time, this was near Cambridge, you could just walk like, it was like a 15 minute walk. Whereas I stayed at the Godfrey, which was another 15 minute walk. So I stayed at the Kimpton, I checked in there, and then I was like, you know, again, it's a refreshing Ticketmaster a million times, <laughs> checking all that. And then I finally found a, a super, like, one of these things I've been learning in these games is sometimes the best seats at the house are the same price. To me, the best seats, like a 15 rows up, as like the upper, upper deck. So I'm looking 
looking at them like, I don't like the pricing where it's going, but if I'm going to spend money for a ticket, I might as well get like a phenomenal ticket. My ticket ended up, these people had this guy from New York bought like all these tickets for this per, this one company and they were like selling them. And I noticed when it went online, he, he put like two up and then it was one. And I, I'm like, well, I can't buy, I just bought the one, but it, how it was, it wasn't even uh, highlighted as a one ticket. So I bought it and I asked him like, when I met there, I said, I go, how are you selling your tickets? He goes, oh, I made a mistake. I didn't know, you know, you actually, I was going to sell it for a lot more, but I messed up <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what do I care? And then I actually moved in. He gave me the aisle seat and then I moved in earlier because I can get a better view. But I was like dead center, 15 rows up. And the commissioner, assistant commissioner of the NBA, uh, Tatum was in front of me and all the other NBA officials were all around me. So that was pretty neat. Silver did, was not there because he would have sat there, but he had COVID. So he, he couldn't attend the game, but it was, it was good to be in that. And I got there, of course, super early. When you get there early, though, I got great pictures of the warm-ups because I could go right on the court, like literally on the first row and get amazing pictures of everybody warming up and how that happens. And I just, I love seeing the Warriors spend a lot of time warming up and you get to take good pictures of Curry shooting and Clay shooting and Draymond Green shooting. And that was fun to be there for that. You would have thought if you go, go to at Iron Sports, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and yeah, you would think that you were on the court <laughs> taking those pictures. Um, anything else here before the game? I thought the enthusiasm was not as great as it was. It was there for three and four. I didn't think the enthusiasm was that great. Now, when the game started, they have a great pregame intro. I mean, most of the teams do. It's hard to not have a good pregame intro, but I love it. it was, their mascot is called Lucky, who's like a leprechaun who runs around, and he has this huge flag, and he stands in the middle, and I just, it is neat how they do it, and I thought the fans, they weren't loud before the game, like going around the arena, but right when the game started for the first, I guess, five minutes, they were into it. But after that, it was, it looked like the Heat game seven. I mean, again, <laughs> the eating of the food. I would ban, if I'm in a game six, if, if my other team could win, I'm just going to not sell food. Like, I'm going to get vouchers. Like, this idea that everyone is going to get food the entire time. I the, the third quarter, the stadium was empty, and there's no way you're paddling through your, this is game six of the NBA Finals. The season's over. What are you doing eating? Get, get the hot dog later. Like, all the restaurants are open after the game. You can go there. I don't know why people have to eat. Like, spend, I would not spend the entire third quarter eating food. No, of course not. But that's, Maybe that's people that didn't, you know, they got dragged there. I mean, I, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me, especially with plenty of options to eat before <laughs> and after. So let's talk about the game, Ira, and this would, you know, go down as, I don't want to say career-defining, but this is the game that takes Steph Curry to the next level. He got his first MVP, and they set us uh, Golden State Warriors went on to do what they had to do against uh, Boston here in this one. I would say in in many ways it is career-defining because what I, I go to so many sporting events, and when you're there at a game like when I was at Game 6, and I'm standing there and people are like, well, I think the Warriors are going to win this. I'm like, if Jason Tatum drains like 15 points in the fourth quarter and he comes back and leads them to a title, leads them to win this game, and then they win Game se- they go back and they win Game 7 in Golden State, Jason Tatum is going to be this all-time great player. This is at like the Kawhi Leonard level. Yeah. If Steph Curry blows it, they be were going to hold this against him the rest of his life. Oh, look, you could only win. You, you, you didn't hold. So to me, this what I love when I'm there in the moment. Like this is career defining. We're going to be talking 20 years from now. Like even now, we talk about Kyrie Irving. If Kyrie Irving doesn't come back and they win that title against the Warriors, people people don't talk about Kyrie winning being a champion. You know, say, oh, he never won a title, even though it's really LeBron's title. All those other things he scored, I know he scored a lot of points, but still, it was LeBron's. But the point is, I did think it was career-defining about Curry and what Tatum could do. And what was shocking was that Curry played well. I mean, he scored 32 points and played mm-hmm. really well. But Tatum played terrible. I mean, that was like one of the worst second half. Scored two points in the second half for a person who's like on this – First, first team, team All NBA, yeah. First team All NBA to score two points in a in a half when you when you should really at that point play twenty four minutes. I mean, you, I mean you should play. You shouldn't be sitting down a second with your season on the line. But and the turnovers and the drives and Jalen Brown in that fourth quarter was trying and Marcus Smart was trying. You're, you're seeing Horford trying. I'm telling you, if Tatum would have played, they might have made that comeback. Tatum was horrendous. And whereas on the Celtics, uh, the Warriors side. Uh, we'll go through the game a little bit, but how the rest of the team came up. It, it's almost like, you know, they were inspired by Curry, but everybody contributed. Everybody, I know he sounds uh, like a cliche, but everybody played a role to win that game for Golden State. They were a true team. No, they were, and, and Draymond Green looked better. I mean, th- things were coming together for that team. Like I said, I, I think that just the momentum from Game 5 was enough, and the fact that Steph you could only go up from there. <laughs> like, you're not going to get a worse performance from Steph. I was very convinced they were going to win it. Let's talk about how it happened. Well, Boston opened, and that's why I said Boston opened the game 14-2. And it was interesting. They opened 14-2, and it looked like Golden State, they were on the ropes. They called a timeout. When they came out of the timeout, 
Boston's bringing the ball up, and the lights go out. And I just, it was so weird. Like, when you're there, it went out for a second. And, like, it just, when you're in an arena like that, and all the lights just go dark, everything went dark. And just for a second, they went back on. Like, I would say five seconds later, but then they had to stop, they had to check. You know, I think, in a way, that helped Golden State. And we talked about the Super Bowl. Remember the Super Bowl? How the Orleans, lights went yeah. out? With, but it was uh, the Harbaugh Harbaugh Super, yeah. Super Bowl, San Francisco and Baltimore. But I, it was like, it wasn't that long a break. It was a few seconds. It was like a minute they took a break. But it just something like that slowed the momentum and the fans got quiet. It, just something about that. It's I eerie. Think. It was eerie like that. So, and, uh, and then suddenly, so then the Warriors scored, you know, they had, Warriors had scored two points in the first four minutes of the game. Then Wiggins, Clay, Curry, Poole, and Payton all made baskets. They got baskets for five different players. And Boston was leading 22-16 with 2.49 left. Then Green made a three. Then Curry made a three. And Poole made a three. So suddenly now they're, they're up 27-22. So they're leading this. And then the second quarter starts. Curry's on the bench. Williams blocks Wiggins' shot. But Green gets an offensive rebound, throws it to Poole for a three. Then Wiggins has a two. The Celtics call a timeout with like 11 minutes to go. So they see this lead blowing away. And I got to give Aduko credit. Unlike Monty Williams of Phoenix, he just kept calling timeouts. Like there was two plays I caught. Like I'm, gonna, I'm not going to save my timeouts till July. Like I, I'm going <laughs> to use them all. Like it was a point where he had like going to have two timeouts left in, in the third quarter. The Celtics missed. Then Poole missed a three-pointer. But Green got another rebound. Poole made a three. And then Brown made a turnover. Wiggins had a dunk. And then they called another timeout with 10 minutes to go. So they had the that whole beginning was there was the break for the, uh, the quarters. Then it was a timeout at the 11 minute mark, timeout at the 10 minute mark, and then it was 37 22 with Golden State with 10 minutes left. It was a 21 to nothing run in fifth, but only four minutes a game. You might see like a 21 nothing run, but in a four minute period, 21 to nothing, and over the whole time in the whole second quarter, it was 35 to 8. So there's really no way you could hold on in terms of that. It was 54 to 39 at halftime, 15 point lead. The Warriors were 10 from 23 from three. Boston was three for 14, a nine point rebounding advantage. And Tatum had 11 points. White was awful. I mean, he was just one for six shooting, just one of the terrible performance. And Smart was in foul trouble. I mean, I think that was the concern. I think the bench, White and Grant Williams, did all had played well in the Milwaukee series. They had played well in the, the against the Heat. Just could not come through in this type of game. In the third quarter, uh, Boston actually won the quarter, but they didn't really make so much in the ground. They cut it to 10 to start the fourth quarter. Um, pay, but that's when Peyton got a dunk. Poole made uh, two free throws and got another basket. And then with 8.27 left, I noticed I noticed Tatum scored his only basket. And then Curry, at the end of the game, Curry was not shooting that great this game, but what I liked what he did in the first unit was just start driving. So he had his driving layup with 7.10 to make it a 14-point lead. Then he had another driving layup. And then Wiggins, like, every time you thought, well, could the Celtics come? Like, this was it. Like, when you see the clinch, it's hard to clinch. You know, he got a great block on Tatum. And then 5.35 left, Brown had a three-pointer to cut it to eight. So everybody's, like, leaving. You know, people are like, I'm like, wait, there's five minutes to go in the game. There's it's the lead is only eight, and then Wiggins answered right back with a three, and then Green and Curry had another had another Curry had a driving layup, and then another three, and it was like I liked how Steph Curry in that fourth quarter just closed out the game with threes, with drives, everything, and that was uh, it was just it was just amazing to see, and then of course they put the uh, Gadala in the end, it wasn't close, no game in the entire series was under 10 points, <laughs> which really? is for, yeah. it, was, it was the first time of course that has ever happened in the NBA Finals to ever have something like that. But um, in the game Curry had played, he was 12 for 21, 6 for 11 from threes, uh, 34 points, 7 boards, 7 assists, only 2 turnovers, with as much carry, carry the had the ball. And Draymond Green at 12 points, 8 assists, tw- uh, um, and 12 rebounds. Otto Porter had 2 big threes, which I think played well. And Andrew Wiggins played 44 minutes. Um, he had 18 points. And Klay Thompson had a bad game, 5 for 10. I mean, he, he was uh, 5 for 20, really, shooting. 12 points, 5 boards, and assists. But, again, Poole had 15 points. Peyton had 6 points. Looney had no points, but he had 6 offensive rebounds. And that was, but the key thing for the Celtics, Tatum had only, he had, he had only 2 points in the second half, 13 total. Brown had 34 points. So Brown had 34 points, but Tatum doesn't do anything. And Smart, you know, played well. He, you know, he played a, a normal game. And uh, um, Horford had 19 points. But really, it was Tatum. This will be remembered how Tatum played and also the bench. Um, 21 points from the bench for Golden State and only five points from the bench from Boston. Uh, and that was, that was really what happened. It was like one of those things where I felt like this was 
it, 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 Tatum's performance was so poor in some of these games, and for someone, and the fans started really getting on him. But that was, if I think about booing, they were booing Tatum a lot mm-hmm. because they're like, do something, and he would drive. He was slow. He just wanted this game to be over. He didn't want it to keep playing. Like he just, he was tired and. It was just he wasn't ready for this. And this was a moment because he might never get back. We talked about this. He might, he might never get, get back, back then. Yeah. It's hard. There's a lot of other good teams. Milwaukee's going to have um, uh, Middleton back next year. You're not going to get to roll through them uh, with just Giannis. He, the, the, after the game, the interviews that he was doing, it, he seemed just exhausted mentally, physically. You're right. I think he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to take a team on his shoulders like a first-team All-NBA player should be. Are you still getting flack from any of the fans of the show that you know don't like your take on Jalen Brown being as good as Tatum? I still, I think, I think it's hard. I mean, for the for the series, Brown had twenty, averaged twenty four points. Tatum averaged twenty one per, per points. Brown had forty three percent shooting, and uh, but he had three turnovers a game. It was it was Tatum's turnovers, but also more than the points. People say, oh, look at stats. It's what was going on. I felt that Jalen Brown in that fourth quarter was like, I'm going to go down, and I don't care what we're going to do. We're going to figure out a way to win this game. Like, and and he. When he cut it to eight with that three, I'm like, wow. And I'm like, if Tatum on some of these moves, and and the one time Tatum went up, and I mentioned about the Wiggins block, it's like he didn't want to go after. Like, it's just like Wiggins was better than Tatum at that point. Like at that, and I just think Tatum was just did not rise at all. He shrunk in the moment of this was this was the NBA Finals game six. You, this is it. Like you got to do yeah. this. And and it, and the fans were upset. I mean, I felt like in Miami. The fans were like, oh, we're okay. I mean, I'm not saying Miami fans are great, but Boston realized this was a defining moment. The playoffs are important, and they were mad. Like, they wanted, they were willing this team to win, and they just were so frustrated that they didn't want to do it. They weren't able to do it. It's 722. This is Ira on Sports on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We'll have uh, NBA Finals winning coach Paul Westhead join us in about 745. So what's the legacy now? I mean, it's great to have won with Kevin Durant, got one before that. Um, what what is it now for Steve Kerr for for Steph Curry? Because a lot of people, the national media seems to think this dynasty is starting all over again, and it's not the craziest thing I heard because all the young guys they have are ascending. They're getting better and better, and this team might be the team to go through in the West for the next three four years. Remember Curry, Clay, and Draymond. They won the title. Um, and then the, with and then the next year they're the best record in the league. They end up losing to the Cavaliers and the, the blowing a three-one lead. They bring Durant in, and the reason why Curry in that first title doesn't get a lot of credit against LeBron because Iguodala played such great defense on LeBron, so they give the tie, they give the MVP to Iguodala. They don't give it to Curry. But then they win two times with Durant, and then they're like, well, you won it with Durant because you had the best player, you had Curry, and you had Durant. It's not fair. All this other stuff, uh, you know, those things. And then they get to have the worst record in the league. They, Clay Thompson gets injured. Curry was hurt. Clay's hurt. Draymond's almost sat a whole season out. So during the, they didn't even the year before the bubble they had the worst record in the league. Then the bubble yeah the, the next year that they weren't good. I mean it was last year they just made the bubble year was terrible. Then last year they uh, they they just barely made the playoffs and were, didn't even make the play lost in the play in game. So the point is, they come back this year, but they still have their core of Curry, Clay, and Draymond. That's why I still think it's a dynasty. I mean, because it's the same three guys. But I love the fact that they brought in a 27-year-old Wiggins who, when LeBron got signed by when was going to decide to go to Cleveland, he said, oh, I know you're going to draft Wiggins. They had already drafted Wiggins. I don't want him on my team. I want Kevin Love. Kevin Love. Made that trade. He goes to Minnesota. Minnesota's like, okay, we're okay with him. He's not. We'll give him his money, but whatever. We'll trade him. And they trade him to Golden State. People are like, what's he going to do? How's he going to fit in? He's fit in perfectly with his team. He's been great for them. And then they draft like Jordan Poole, who's like no one like the 25th pick in the draft, how, how well he's been playing. And they bring Looney in, and they make a signing of Otto Porter. I mean, there were some players that decided, like, you know, they were just, they know how to pick players that fit their system, which is so important. There's so many teams that don't know, I mean, how to do that. I mean, it's it's great. And they pick Gary Payton. He's been weighed by five different teams. All of these guys play key roles. But what's so great about this team is that in 2020, with the second pick, when they were bad, they picked James Wiseman. <laughs> James Wiseman, no one's seen in this whole play. Yeah. He didn't play this whole year. He's 21 years old. He could be this superstar center, this great player. Uh, uh, Moody, Moses Moody is 20 years old. He was the 14th pick. He saw him a little in the playoffs. He looks great. And Kaminga is 19 years old. He's 19. And we've seen flashes of greatness from him. Yeah, 20. I mean, he could be like, I mean, I look at him like the next Giannis and he's 19 years old, 21. So you have these three super young players. And what you think they have a great future is Steph Curry. Because Steph Curry is someone who in the prime of his career, when he was 29, 30 years old, said, 
I'm going to have Kevin Durant come on this team. I know I'm the man. I want, I'm going to bring it. And I'll take. I'll let him become the MVP. He didn't say whatever. He does everything. Not only does he, he went to the Hamptons and recruited Kevin Durant. He's flying around the country trying to bring Kevin Durant in. He is a team player of all team players. And as he ages and probably doesn't score the 30 points a game, but you could just see him being this great shooter and, and developing people. And he and Clay and with Kerr with this, how the situation, the fact that they can spend money, they'll go over the cap. They look like a team that's set to go. Like I don't, they have more than one title. I think they're going to have multiple title runs, and I think that these younger players and are going to develop into this, this. We are looking at one of the great organizations. What you said about Steph Curry is a good point too. That people think, oh, because he's smaller, you know, he's not going to age well. He's going to break down. He doesn't have to go to the rim. So he could be forty, and if he, and if he stands there, you still have to put someone on him. Right. He doesn't have to do much. All he needs is the ball in his hand. He can create a shot from anywhere. That's not going to change in three years. So what's to say that, yeah, this team won't win the and next two? And he's already taken a subservient role in the prime of his career. Yeah. He's not going to be like one of those, like Carmelo at the end. You know, yeah. Carmelo's like, <laughs> who can't really? Like Carmelo, you can't shoot the ball all the time. You're 37, 38. You can't be the star of the team. He's already done that. And that's why I think that's why this team is perfect. And I think that Clay next year, I look for him to come back. I mean, he had all these years injuries. You see how hard he works. Like, he's going to come back. Poole's going to get better. Like, this team is next year, I think, is going to be better than they were this year. Because going to the playoffs, I thought the Suns were a better team. Now, they never faced the Suns but um, because the Suns lost to the Mavericks. But uh, I, I like this team. I like the future. And I like I mean, Steph Curry, the question is where you rate him in history. I mean, there's a point where... Is he in there? I might. I think he potentially is a top ten player. I would take Oscar Robertson out, put him in. Some people said take Will Stephen A. said take Will Chamberlain out. Yes. I do not think he's better than Will Chamberlain. That's not the case. He, but, he's a one B for sure. He's 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 done. This has definitely elevated him, and you could see he wanted it. He did not and. The good thing about Steph Curry was not only did he want it, the teammates wanted him. When he wanted, they were the ones pushing him up on the. Uh, they were they loved it. They for him. They're like, look, you criticize. I mean, everybody. The fact that that Draymond and Clay and the younger players, they all. It's that's what kind of leader he is. I mean, he is a different type of leader. I, do you think that all these other Lakers wanted this for Kobe? No. When Kobe was playing, they didn't like him. Even Jordan, it's like you're great. You're this and that. Polarizing. But this is he is definitely somebody that the rest of the players would do anything for to help him. And I think that's what they did in game five and six ira on sports true oldies channel at 728 i'm mike balsamo don't forget all across social media at ira on sports you mentioned the future ira and part of the future is going to happen this thursday nfl uh, nba draft uh, is going to occur and the nba draft to me is one of the weirdest ones if you look at a hockey draft five years later pretty much you know 75 percent of the first round these are good players you go to the nfl and the first round half these guys aren't getting a second contract really hard to pick they'll have all pros in the fourth in the NBA draft, there might only be 10 guys that are even going to do anything in the league. It's just really hard to pick. You never really know what's going to happen. What do you think happens with this NBA draft? Well, like last last year, I mean, the last couple of years, I mean, because these players are coming out so young, there's no Zion Williamson. There's no John Moran. Now, there might be somebody later in the draft. Giannis was drafted, what, 14th? Like someone four or five years. But no one in this draft is going to go on a team and say he's a difference maker on this team. So that's what's different than even a football draft where you say, well, this person could be a – we're drafting a quarterback. Can he pick it? A left tackle can start right yeah, away. Yeah, right. It's just – it's it's very, like last year, Scotty Barnes won the Rookie of the Year. Scotty Barnes from Florida State. Had a nice year for Toronto. Good player. But he's not. no one's saying Scotty Barnes is a difference making yeah, building player. building a team around right. Scotty Barnes. And, and Mobley played well for, for uh, Cleveland. Cleveland and, and Kate Cunningham played well for Detroit. But, again, Detroit had one of the worst records in the league. It's just – it's like they're going to poor teams. Look at the teams drafting Orlando, Oklahoma City, Houston, Sacramento, Detroit. Trust me, none of these teams are playing. The, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not making any difference. Yeah, there's no John Morant taking these guys to the No, playoffs. I mean, if you would see that maybe a superstar team was up there. I like – New Orleans is at eight. So maybe I think New Orleans, if they get lucky with this pick and make another good pick, they've had they got Herb Jones last year. Uh, Zion comes back healthy. I think New Orleans could be that. So I'm interested with New Orleans pick. I think we're going to see trades. I think we're going to see some of these interesting trades that happen. And I think that's going to be one of the things in the draft. I love going to the draft. I'll go to it. But of course, this year is just no buzz because if you look at the players like Pablo Bonchero of Duke. I just don't see him. I watched Duke play all this year. He's not a difference maker. Chet Holgram for Gonzaga, he's so skinny. Like, you know, like what's kind of maybe four or five years from now, but not now. And Javari Smith, who a lot of people think are going to be number one, I was, saw him play for Auburn against Miami in the NBA, in the NCAA in uh, Greenville. I was there at the game. He shot three for 16. They lost by 18 to Miami. He was terrible in that game. <laughs> There's nothing that leads me to believe that in the most important college game has he ever played, that he was three for 18, uh, three for 16, that he's going to come in and be dominant in the NBA. No, I, I agree with you there. And, yeah, this might 
It might end up being a, a draft that we largely forget 10 years from now, but it's only time will tell. I, I still love drafts anyway. I, I don't care. Ira, you said uh, you know before we went on the air, and you've been saying it for the past couple of weeks, you're all in on hockey now. And as you should be, because you're watching, as you watch the, the playoffs in the Stanley Cup, you see a, just a different sport than you see uh, in the regular season. And we're seeing kind of a different Tampa Bay team, unfortunately, uh, for, for people in Florida that, that root for them. So let's go back to game one here. And this was a game where Tampa Bay played okay. Colorado looked faster and better the entire time, and they had what it t- took at the end to, uh, to put them down. Yeah, I mean, they were in the, in the, in the first period – I think the key was that the Avs killed a penalty, and the moment they killed it, they, they scored. And uh, you're like, wow, Vasilevsky. You, you thought that Colorado was going to be – they had, like, what, a month? They hadn't played a game. Yeah, they were going to be – three weeks. They weren't going to be so sharp. And that maybe that way they were they – were, they were, they, Tampa Bay, which is coming off the Rangers series, they're more in tune that they would, you know, steal this game, the first game, that maybe Colorado was just, just not going to be ready for this game. But they're down 3-1. And then I think the second period, Kucherov had a fast break, and then Kucherov – Scores made it three three. That was they scored within like thirty seconds of each other to yeah. tie it up. And you're like, okay, this is the Tampa team we know. They played poor the first period. The second period, they scored those two goals. And then you get in the third period, and Vasilevsky uh, was stopping everything. But they looked terrible. I mean, that's where anyone who criticizes Vasilevsky, the goalie for Tampa, is crazy because in that third period, they were shooting everywhere, and he was blocking everything. And uh, uh, Tampa killed this penalty. Uh, you know, at the end, they, they actually had. Colorado was finishing the regular uh, session with a penalty and a power play, and they weren't able to score. But then they go right into overtime, and Colorado scores and make it 4-3. So really, Colorado won, the, quote, the overtime, the third, and the first, and really the second period was the only time Tampa played play well. You saw a lot of um, complacency from Tampa Bay. You saw a lot of dumb dumb plays, giving the puck away in, in the offensive zone, things like that, that if it happens consistently, you're going to lose. And then game two came around. And not only did they do that consistently, it's about all they did was set up Colorado to win. They just looked terrible from the time the original puck dropped. Remember, so they played on on Wednesday, and then they had an extra day. Yeah, they took off off Friday. So rarely, while we're watching the Stanley Cup, rarely are you having this. So now you've lost the game one. Now you have two extra days to plan. And you're thinking, okay, now, and you've been... Their coach, John Cooper, is excellent at adjustments, too. At adjustments. And you you now can recover whatever you were tired of. You can maybe get used to the altitude. You get, you're used to the altitude of Colorado. Boy, from that first... Have, it was like, I was going to call it kicking and screaming. If anyone saw the movie with Will Ferrell, it's like when they were <laughs> playing, like they were the worst soccer team in the league. They were playing the best soccer team in the league that was coached by his father. And they were like, they outscored 20 to 1 on goals. And it was just funny. Yeah. But it was like, that was what it was. It was like constant... Just it was not Vasilevsky giving up goals. I mean, it, his final score was seven nothing. But in the first period, it's like one minute. The first minute is a power play. Uh, Colorado scores one nothing. Then they score right again. And then Tampa was getting these delay of game penalties, which was just crazy when you throw it. It's the easiest penalty to call when you hit the puck out of yeah. the ring. And seven minutes left, they go up three nothing. And then and then you're like, okay, you're down three nothing. You had the same problem in the first, but you'll make it. You'll make it a game. But the second period, <laughs> they score again and they score again. Like again, it was like fourteen. At one point, it was fourteen to three scoring chance. And the third period, you're like, can you? I question is why did they not pull Vasilevsky? But also, Tampa Bay was embarrassing. Like, this is your star goalie. Like, hustle back on defense. Do something. Do not let your goalie just. They were just standing there, like, okay. It was like practice for him. And but you notice that when I went to the games during the pregame warmups, when they warm up, the goalie they put in there is the backup goalie. They don't have their goalie because they don't want him shooting like mm-hmm. everyone shooting shots at him the whole time. That's almost what it was. Like, it was the pregame warmups with a backup goalie because Vasilevsky was just trying. There's like two on ones, three on ones, four on ones. Late, you Lazy, lazy defense, sloppy offense. Yeah, it seemed like every time they were shooting, it was an uncontested shot. And, it, you know, they, they had wide open looks at the net. Nobody's taking pucks. It was embarrassing for everyone but, but Andre Vasilevsky in that game. And now, you know, we have game two starting in about 25 minutes. I mean, game three starting in about 25 minutes. I don't have much confidence in Tampa Bay. And like, I, I want to bet them to win here, but I just don't know what to expect from this team after how disheveled, for lack of a better word, they looked in game two. Uh, Mark Messier's comments, of course, Messier, one of the the greatest uh, hockey players of all time, said in all his years of watching playoff hockey, he's never seen one team beat another team that bad. He says it wasn't the score, it was just the complete utter dominance. And he made the comment of Vasilevsky, this score could have been 15 to nothing. Like, it was, it was like, it was unbelievable. From beginning to end, Tampa Bay did nothing. It was almost like they were on a perpetual 
a power play. Colorado's on a petro power play the entire game. Like it was like we're gonna play five on four, and that's what it's gonna be. Whatever they call Colorado gets in a power play, it was like five on two. Yeah, devastating. <laughs> Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, and Mike Balsamo, Paul Westhead joins us in just about ten minutes. Still so much to talk about, and we have a new major champion, Ira, and you got to be there for part of it. Well, I went there on Friday uh, for it's called the Country Club. And uh, in Brookline, Massachusetts, course. and it's really close. People don't realize. I mean, they said it's outside Boston. It's it's in Boston. It's right now. It's, it's like five right, miles from downtown. Yeah, it's it. right there. It's a, I could have literally walked there to the TD Garden and everything. It was so close. I Ubered there, and I think one of the biggest surprises I have was I can't believe nobody came there on Friday. I've never, I cannot. But I go to the Genesis. Like I've been to so many golf tournaments. That's the fewest people I've ever seen a golf tournament. Like there was nobody. Nobody at this golf tournament. Now, I know they kept but I just couldn't. On, on Friday, at the end of the day, when uh, Domin, the leader, was coming down, there's stands on both sides. I think it was his family and myself. I could have been <laughs> out there at his practice round. There was nobody at this. I was watching Jordan Spieth. I was following Jordan Spieth. I was following Rom. I was following Morikawa. Uh, nobody. It was just, I mean, Spieth, Adam Scott, Homa, Herschel, Catalan. Like, there was this good row that you could have Morikawa and Rom, and then Spieth, Adam Scott, and Homa, and then Billy Herschel, Canelay, and Berger. Big names all in a row. Nobody. Not a person there. You think that'd be where everyone in the tournament was? I, Phil Mickelson, <laughs> I saw him early Friday, and because I wanted to see, you know, the whole live golf thing, he had the biggest crowds of anyone. I mean, I, he was, he was, his crowds were, were big, but I, I brought my stool. I didn't need it. I didn't need my stool the entire time. There was no. I go up to the ropes. I'm like right there. There was. It's walk around. It was like I couldn't believe how few people were at the tournament. Now I saw it looked busier, of course, on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. But I was just surprised on Friday how nobody was there. It's still, yeah, it looked like there was a lot of grass to, to be had on the, on the weekend. Still, so let's talk a minute about Matthew Fitzpatrick, who took this one down. Kind of a storybook here, a little bit that he won the U.S. Amateur there. I believe it was ten years prior. And wins at the same golf course, Brookline, to win his first major. It's it's amazing. He 2013 U.S. Amateur at Brookline. He stayed at the uh, the guy who runs the tournament's house, and they remained friends. So he stayed there this time again. Um, he has eight wins on the Euro Tour. He's ranked in the top 20 going into this. He's now 10th in the world. But he played in his in in his 23 majors that he's played. He's only 27, but he's been playing a lot. He started playing majors earlier. He's only had one top 10. So he wasn't. He's not like. We know him from the Ryder Cup. You know him a little, but he wasn't. He hasn't really. He didn't. Had a, it just. It was. He's a European. He, he tour. could walk through the mall, and most Americans. And nobody would know. Would know. I, would, yeah. I wouldn't recognize. But uh, uh, and then, but I think, but it was from that perspective. But it was, it was definitely on that Sunday. It was it was uh, Fitzpatrick, Zalateras, and Scheffler were were competing, and you're and you're surprised. You, you want some of the other big names to be at it. Being there though, I think mean, a lot of people ask me the same question: Were they booing Phil Mickelson? Were they booing the live golfers, the Bryson? I didn't see it at all. I felt they were. It was the same thing. You heard people talk about it, but I never saw any booing. I never saw people like they seemed excited about Phil. They no one said, "Oh, the Saudi, you know, money that type of thing." I didn't hear the cat calls or nothing like that at, at, at all. Uh, Phil didn't play well. He played terrible. But the fact is, and none of the live golfers were in contention. Of the, I think fifteen golfers were in the field. No one. I think Dustin Johnson played. Probably the best of them okay. all. Yeah, he made but, a cut, but. <laughs> but it was it was but it's it's what everybody was talking about, and it was like it's like everyone's like looking like who's next, who's gonna do it, who's whatever. I mean, it was that aspect. I mean, I was watching Golf Channel on Tuesday, the Wednesday, and they would cut to like a non-lib golfer. They're like, oh, he looks great, and then they cut to like Bryson. Oh, Bryson. Well, yeah. you know, his <laughs> his career's over. You know that type of thing. Or Phil is the worst person in the world. I mean, again, I mean, they they, they we watched the I watched Formula One. They race in Saudi Arabia. I mean, they, they the Saudi Arabia owns you. If you take Uber, I've taken Uber all over the place, and they own like a quarter of the company. So the point is, is that it was it was to treat these golfers like the. I think again, I've said if it was Mother Teresa that's funding this, they have the same problem. It's a challenge to the PGA Tour. It's a challenge to what they want to have, and this is the PGA Tour fighting back and, and seeing. But it was interesting to see these different golfers. But a lot of them, you did get a sense though that some of the golfers, like when they asked Brooks questions, he didn't say, "Well, no, I'm PGA Tour." Like he was sort of evasive. So it leads you to believe. I mean, the Rory's came out. Oh, I, you know, PJ Tour, I love it. But these others were like, well, you know, they were bullish. <laughs> yeah, and I think that people didn't want to make waves or at the U.S. Open. And in the what I liked about the Brookline or the course, the Country Club, the buildings were beautiful. Like around it, it was very, very nice. I thought, and and it was just, it was hilly and it was nice. And like the views, it wasn't like a lot of water, so it wasn't that stunning water. But they also have a lot of trees. Like against, I was Oakmont, and they cut all the trees down. I like courses that you saw with trees all there. Yeah, I like so it. I think that made it nice. I mean, the rough wasn't, 
I think what made this course harder was that that the, where the bunkers were. You see so much on the tour, someone's in a bunker, and it's just like a layup. Oh, in a bunker, I'll just chip it in. Th these bunkers, if you, it's hard to go from the bunker into the hole. Was it hard? That I think that's what the challenge of the of the event was. I don't think it was this crazy where it was like, oh my God, the balls are rolling all over the place. You can't put it on. But I do think it. I think it was a very fair course for what they wanted as he was open. It, almost a bigger story, Ira, than Matthew Fitzpatrick's win is Will Zalatoris' second place. Ten majors now, six top tens, three second places. He doesn't have a win on the tour, which I find interesting. He hasn't won anything um, outside of these. But he's really, he. I mean, we, we've said it you know, last time. He's poised to win. He played pretty darn good, had a shot to uh, to birdie on 18 to tie it up. But this kid, he's phenomenal, and we're going to see him soon. Well, I thought the funniest thing, I saw a meme that said, that he is the favorite to be the British Open coming up in two weeks. That he's the favorite to be in second place. Yeah, it has to be <laughs> like a horse. You can bet win, place, show. Just take place on Will Zalatoris. Um, anything? We only got about five minutes, so we need to get to Paul Westhead. Anything else we want to sum up here? Yeah. Well, I just I did want to talk about in terms of. Uh, I really thought like the people who missed the cut, like Sergio missed the cut, Shane Lowry missed the cut, Tyler Gooch missed the cut, uh, Victor Hovland and Phil, of course, played played poor. Um, on Saturday, uh, Morikawa went from leading it to shooting a 77, fell just totally, completely. totally fell apart. And that's when Scheffler was able, at one point, Scheffler, I felt, could run away with the tournament. He had an eagle on eight with a two-shot lead, but then he fell, hit a disaster, a double bogey on 11, then bogeys on 12 and 14. It's amazing when he fell back to, you know, he fell back to two under that he was still going to be in this. And Zalateris and Fitzpatrick both uh, stayed at four, uh, at four under and starting, so they were in the final group for Sunday. And now John Rahm, he had a chance to also have the lead. He was at three under, at five, oh, he was five under leading it. And on 18, it's the ball into the uh, sand trap and then hits it again and just totally has a double bogey on that hole, drops. And then he never did anything. I mean, that was the end of yeah. his whole tournament. But I think, uh, um, but, you know, Dustin Johnson was plus two, never made a charge. Dustin Thomas, plus three, never made a charge. Brooks was even after two rounds. Again, finished with a 77. I thought Brooks was going to have a Sunday, a Saturday storm. But uh, You know, the only one who did was Hideki Matsuyano had five birdies, no bogeys. And on 17-18, he had a chance to go and hit B at five under. He was at three under going into that. And he, and he, and he just parred those two holes. Morikawa came back. He shot, was a 200 with a 66. But really, it was a three-hole race um, between Chef, uh, Scotty Scheffler, Fitz, Matthew Fitzpatrick, and Zalatoris. And Scheffler had a, it was at six under after, the, after like first like nine holes. And then on 10, he, he bogeyed that. And then on 11, he, al he also had a two bogeys back-to-back. -back. So that brought him back to the pack two times. I thought when Scheffler had his shot to win, he just sort of let go. And then 11 was like the key hole because Zalatoris made this big, long putt uh, that I felt took control of the tournament. And Fitzpatrick bogeyed 11. And then so that's where Zalatoris has his lead. Like everybody had their chance to take a lead. And, but then on 13, Scheffler, who was one person, one group ahead, our two groups had actually missed an easy par to go to minus three. And Zalatoris, he um, he made a par in that hole, but Fitzpatrick hit a 40-foot birdie. And when he that putt went in, I mean, that was just that was amazing how you hit that in. And then on 15, the tournament was one on that 15, 11, 15, and 18. Um, Fitzpatrick hit an awful tee shot, uh, but then he put a 10-foot putt for a birdie. Uh, that put him to six. And Zalatoris uh, bogey that put him down to down down to four. So he had a two shot lead. Really at fifteen, he had a two shot lead. But that's where Zalatoris gets credit on on fifteen for getting another birdie. And then on on eighteen, uh, Zalatoris right into the fairway, uh, you know, trying to get a birdie to tie it. And that's when Fitzpatrick hits the ball into a sand trap. So you're like, oh my gosh, he's going to blow this entire tournament. Hits the sand trap, but then right from the sand, he hits it right in the into the green. What a pars shot. the hold. And uh, that was, and he didn't, because we saw Mita Pereira do that, blow that lead in the PGA. Mm -hmm. This sort of was exactly what uh, Fitzpatrick did. You're like, oh, and this is chance for Zalatoris or Scheffler. Like, I, you almost thought you were going to get a three-hole uh, because both Zalatoris and Scheffler tied for second. So you thought you were going to get that playoff. But Fitzpatrick held on and won and made part of that 18. But that, I thought that it was... It was a good win for for him in terms of you don't want to you don't want to be Amito Pereira and say boy that was a nice attempt you want to win the you know you win at the U.S. Open it gives you like everything for a long time no yeah he, he's a good, exempted he, yeah exemption but even just like the money and fame he'll get he'll get back at home like it, it it's it's life changing when you win a major um, we, we only have like a minute or so here uh, you want to talk about Liv you brought it up before and they do have a new member maybe uh, Mexico's greatest golfer ever uh, Abraham Answer and that it's like the, now it's coming. It was Pat They're Perez. They're getting bigger names now. It was Pat Perez, and then it was Abraham Answer, and then you're trying to think what the next names are. 
I'm telling you, I feel it's Brooks. I just think that it's. it just seems like it's going to – his answers were like, look, I don't want to talk about it. Why do you guys keep talking about it? I feel like Brooks would like to play like nine tournaments, ten tournaments, twelve tournaments a year, do that, make all the money, play the majors. It seems like they're applying for world golf points. You know, eventually, if enough of these good golfers keep coming to this field, at first they said oh, it's just going to be the old golfers, but then you hear Bubba Watson, who's a little older, so that would be one thing. But, but you can still play. But you, yeah, and you're starting to see. And what if like? But I always thought like, what if Fitzpatrick? What if you know? What if they give money and like you just won the U.S. Open, and you go? And there's a point where these tours are going to be even in terms of talent. People kept saying that's the biggest criticism. How can you not give world golf points to this event if they get the world golf points? Then they can then play in the majors. Then you're going to get two tours. You're really getting two tours going forward. Yeah, and it'd be interesting if the say the quality was better on the live tour now you're giving in, inferior ranking points to people winning you know tournaments here that have no competition in them so it's kind of interesting but i think every day goes. this week they kept saying like so you saw answer which is a surprise these people are surprised to me because he's uh from mexico and, and this again the you start seeing the international golfers because they're used to play like uh, to some of that i i, I just yeah, think, i'm not at home anyway on the pga tour. right so it, it's just interesting i i'm just intrigued by every like we saw the taller gooches ranked 30th in the world patrick reed was 31st in the world hudson strafford 34th bryson 28 like you're seeing that mix but but again i think you have dustin johnson who's the next big big name is it going to be xander shoffley is it going to be some other top 20 golfer in there i want to talk a little uh formula one before we get to paul Westhead. yeah just this was in in uh canada in montreal beautiful race to watch matthew verstappen you don't want to say that he's wrapped up the, the title, but boy, he looked great. He had, was on the pole, and uh, and he and he and he and he won the and he won. Ferrari just has all these problems. I mean, uh, Carlos Sites ended up uh, his car doesn't they the cars aren't aren't able to you know stay in terms of whatever. And uh, it was like, but this was like the key for this race was that uh, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. Lewis Hamilton finished third. Uh, this was his chance. I mean, it seems like Mercedes is finally running better and staying in this. And that's, but it, it, they really have no threat. It's Verstappen right now is 175 points. Perez, his teammates, is 129. Leclerc is 126. And uh, so he's, he has a huge lead. There's been nine races, and Verstappen has won six of those races. Let's go to Paul Westhead. It's Iron Sports. So we're talking to Paul Westhead, uh, former NBA coach, championship coach, winning coach. And he was the author of, of, uh, of, of the book, The Speed Game, My Fast Times of Basketball. It's available in Barnes & Noble and everything. Anyone, you just go online, you can get The Speed Game. And what's so great about your book is that I've watched all 10 winning time this, every, every episode. And if you've watched it and love it, there's millions of people who have. And if you just enjoy it in some ways, you know, read the book. I encourage you to get this book because the, everything you see in the movie, he talks about, Coach Westhead talks about in the book. So I really encourage people to get this book. And I, the question I ask you is, have you watched Winning Time? Have you seen all the episodes? Yeah, I have. Uh, I would say on the plus side, it's a terrific uh, nighttime soap opera. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, it's really intriguing. Like, you know, if you like soap opera at, at 11 o'clock in the morning, you will like uh, winning time at 7 at night. But uh, there are many things they take a creative uh, license to do whatever they want. And, you know, a lot of the characters, myself included, uh, really isn't true to form, but you know, if you if you're looking for entertainment, uh, I, I can't knock it. But uh, I mean, I didn't go around all day long quoting Hamlet uh, <laughs> to my players. <laughs> I did talk about yeah, how to play the pick and roll once in a while. Did Did Jerry West say to you the one line was when you were first hired when Jack McKinney was hired and and then brought you in as an assistant and and Jerry West looked at you and said and you said you know I once guarded you and he says I hope you coach better than you play defense was that true? <laughs> I, I don't remember, but uh, there, there's some truth to that. Uh, <laughs> in my senior year, I I, I played Jerry West uh, and I also play Oscar Robinson and. Uh, you don't want to ever play either one of them. Uh, but uh, I hope I did coach better than I played Jerry West or Oscar Robinson. Well, one of our mutual friends, uh, Fran Dunphy, I worked with Coach Dunphy when he was at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, he's back at LaSalle, so I joke with him that now that he's at LaSalle, perhaps that in a few years he'll become the Lakers coach And uh, because I know you, were, <laughs> you went from the, being the LaSalle coach to coaching the Lakers within a year, which is amazing. 
But the one thing for Winning Time and from your book that you, you talk about, the thing that's saying was that, that in order to get Kareem to buy in into the, the fast break thing, Jack McKinney comes in and wants to run a fast break offense, and you really spent time working with Kareem in terms of saying, this is completely different how you played. You've won all these MVPs and the titles and everything, but uh, we're going to change something different. And that was one of the things you did was work with Kareem and, and getting a buy-in. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I worked with Kareem when I first arrived, uh, and I, I it was the easiest thing I ever did. Uh, Jack sent me down. He said, why don't you go down and work with Kareem a little bit? So I went down and said, what do you want to do? He said, well, you stand in the corner and throw me the ball. And he was like in a low post position, and, and he took 30 little jump hooks, and I kept throwing the ball in, and he'd take a jump hook, jump hook. And he made like 29 out of the 30, and then he stopped and he said, thank you very much. <laughs> So I said, "Wow, this is this is good. Uh, I like this NBA coaching." Uh, but I, I say that because we had a team that you know, and Jack McKinney did a great job of putting in uh, his his offense, and uh, the players enjoyed it. And uh, if there was anything that uh, he would do, and I did after Jack was. When we get stuck, throw the ball into the captain, throw it into Kareem, and, and he'll take care of business for us. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the one thing that it's we a nice, need... a nice play to have if you get stuck. It's a nice play to go to. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, a very, very, very good play to go to. And one of the uh, things for the movie, and what you mentioned in your book, too, is that doing the lineup, I mean, there seemed to be that friction between Nixon and Magic, uh, like who's going to be the point guard, and then your idea was we're, we're free-flowing. You know, the offenses we look today, where there's not many teams don't have a true, quote, point guard, and that they put, when you when, the thing in the movie you could see was they put Magic or, and Nixon on the same squad. They were both on the A team, and uh, and that sort of got everything moving better. Yeah, yeah, Ira, that's interesting you bring that up. Uh, however, whatever the movie says, it was really Jack McKinney who... Uh, came up with the idea that they could share the ball, a two-guard offense, so it didn't matter to him who had it, who didn't have it. If, if Norm had it, then Magic would play off him, and if Magic had it, Norm would play off him. In my scheme, and when I eventually, uh, the second and third season, took over the team, uh, I was much more regimented, and I had Magic as the point guard, and I had Nixon as the shooting guard. Uh, and, you know... 35 years later, uh, that wasn't really a good idea because uh, uh, Nixon, in particular, was a point guard who didn't mind shooting, but he didn't want to be an off guard. Like, I never got to this player, like Byron Scott was. Byron Scott was the classic two guard. Uh, Norm was kind of a combo guard, and therefore he he really wasn't happy being off the ball all the time. Wow. And then... Of course, the move, you know, why this, uh, the winning time brings this out is that uh, Jack had an, ac- her, uh, uh, an accident after, I think, 14 games into the so 13 games in the season. And then you were thrust within right. one day to start coaching. And it's not like today when, you know, you can hear like, you know, three coaches have COVID and there's still another five on the bench. I mean, it was just you. You're the <laughs> only assistant to go to be a coach. Yeah. Yeah, Ira. Well, uh, when Jack was injured and we had a shoot around the next day in a game that night, uh, it was either me or the trainer. Uh, and, and the trainer wasn't an ex-player or ex-coach, so uh, by default it was me. And the, I was like a substitute teacher. They said, okay, you take the game tonight, and after the game we'll talk to you. <laughs> so it was like uh, one game at a time. And I still remember in that game we – Looks like we were going to lose, and Jamal Wilkes made a terrific jump shot to tie the game, and then we went into overtime, and we won. So, otherwise, I probably would have been back to Philadelphia early. <laughs> well, they talked about the movie about how you had to stop David Thompson, and actually looked up in that game, he only had 17 points. So, I guess your defense was perfect on how to stop Thompson. But I, when you went in there, they had the, the, the movie brings up, and you mentioned in the book also about Spencer Haywood who you did not get along with. You Initially, you wanted to bet. You put him more on the bench, and uh, he was not too happy with that. Correct. Uh, that was another of the issues that happened after Jack McKinney's injury. Uh, uh, Spencer came to me uh, like a week later and said, you know, that he and Jack McKinney had an agreement that he was going to be a starter. 
And I said, well, I never knew anything about that agreement with you and Jack. And <laughs> I'm just going to play. I'm just going to play the people that, you know, I see fit in. And the more you will play is how you, you know, how well you do. So Spencer wasn't real happy with that. And, you know, uh, if you don't get playing time in the NBA, uh, you're always going to be unhappy. So uh, th- th- that didn't go well for either one of us. And I don't think it was anybody's fault, but uh, uh, we got through that. And down here in South Florida, we're, of course, very familiar with Pat Riley. And I think the scenes with Riley in the, in the movie in which you describe in the book how you picked him as, as your assistant coach and bringing him in, um, I can't imagine Pat Riley ever staying in a Howard Johnson's, sharing a room with anybody Howard Johnson's right now. But um, yeah. that was that was a yeah, funny. That, I mean, that's part. There's an example that, you know, that, that's outlandish, like that Riley would grab me and put me in the shower and say, <laughs> you know, what, what are you going to do now? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it was entertainment, but uh, far from the truth. Uh, neither neither one of us shared the room and neither one of us had those kind of conversations. <laughs> so the point is, though, but, but in, in the in, in, in real life, we'll say for say, did you have a feeling yep. like where I mean, there was rumors about Elgin Baylor becoming brought in as a coach. There was a question: Are you is Jack when's Jack coming back? I mean, you were not only the coach, but you were dealing with all these rumors around you. It must have been so difficult because you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know if Jack was coming back. You're the assistant. If they're going to bring in another coach, is Jack going to get better? It's just so many things. Yeah, uh, the, you know the Elgin Baylor uh, thing. Uh, I, I do know some of the background. Uh, when uh, I was coaching by myself, and I did it for probably about two or to three weeks, I actually had one of my players, Don Ford, sitting on a bench, like taking little notes for me. And after about two or three games, he came to me and said, Coach, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you can you play me if you want, but I'm not going to sit around and, and take notes for you. So anyway, that didn't work. So while we were deciding on a, a, a new uh, coach to be with me uh, I did go to Jerry Buss and I recommended Pat Riley and he turned me down he said uh, let's think about that he said go you're going on a road trip go on a road trip and when you come back let's talk again what what I didn't understand about Jerry Buss was when he tells you to think about it and come back and talk to me he thinks you're smart enough to come back and say oh I understand what you want but I wasn't that smart. So I kept saying Riley, and he said to me on one occasion, uh, what about Elgin Baylor? So he suggested Elgin Baylor, and this is very early on in the season, you know, game 15 or to 20. Later in the season, that, that topic never came up. So once Riley was hired, uh, the, the possibility of Elgin becoming involved in the team went away. But then the issue is then when Jack McKinney gets better and and is is healthier and then starts traveling with the yep. team, then that became a difficulty because you're coaching, it's your team, you're talking to the players, but he's there. You know, they showed the scene with Philadelphia. That must have been, you know, that that must have been difficult in terms of having McKinney there, but not really coaching and but looking over your shoulder. Yeah, it was difficult more on a personal level. Uh, Jack and I were very good friends. Uh, Jack McKinney helped me immensely in my coaching career, you know, uh, getting my first uh, coaching job at St. Joe's as an assistant uh, with him and uh, getting me to the L.A. Lakers. So I I was indebted uh, 100% to Jack McKinney. But during that time frame, during his recovery from his injuries, he really wasn't hanging around like you had impression in the in winning time and always in the background and uh, no he he came sparingly at best and the decision to not have jack return was really made not between pat riley and i and and uh, other people in the office it was made by dr bus and the doctors the medical doctors who were observing uh jack's recovery so it, it was a pure uh, owner decision, uh, not something that was bantered around in the in the locker room or in the hotel. 
the one thing they mentioned in the in the winning time, which is different than real life, they had the, the game against Boston like around Christmas when it was on January 13th. But was that a big game? Like, did you feel like that the, the winning time made that game to be the you had to win the game or you're going to lose your job and they were going to bring <laughs> someone else in? But and then, you know, the whole thing. I mean, it is funny how they play the Larry Bird and Magic thing is hilarious. I mean, it's just it is comical how they do that. But was did you feel pressure on that game? Did you was it is it is just that was a creative license by the movie? Yeah, again, it's the creativity of the movie. It, it's the soap opera, get Magic and Larry Bird and mess them up and have Westhead on the ropes and have Elgin Baylor in a hotel room. I mean, what, what more drama could you want? But uh, it was, yeah, anytime you played Boston, it was a big game. You know, if you're a Laker coach or if you're a Laker player, uh, it doesn't have to be the playoffs. If it's the Boston Celtics uh uh, it's an important game, and you want to win. And then, uh, and then you get the chance to coach in the playoffs, and you win. They really in the in the movie they go quick over the Seattle and Phoenix series. You won four one in each. And then the idea about when was Spencer Haywood? What was the idea about suspending him? And when did that suspension happen? And that must have been a difficult decision. Or was that was that? I mean, the movie makes it winning time made it seem like it was a team decision. Uh, how what, how did that suspension actually go down before the finals? Yeah, yeah, I, I saw all of that too. Uh, uh, Spencer and I had a had another run in at a game, one of the playoff games, and uh, I I personally went to Jerry Buss and said, uh, "This is the second or third time that I've come up and said to you, I think we should do something with Spencer." And he said, "Okay," uh, and his okay was he suspended him. It was not a team meeting. It was not, you know, finally I saw in the winning time Kareem makes the final yeah. uh, decision because it was a tie. No, uh, it was it was me, uh, and I hope Spencer forgives me because I forgave him. Uh, it was me who made that decision, and Jerry Buss uh, executed that decision. And now we're talk get to probably one of the two most famous games in Game Five when in the finals against the Sixers. And first of all, I was surprised. Everyone thought you were going to play Boston, but Boston was they lost to the Sixers four one, and Bird had a terrible game and they had like twelve points in that in the fifth game. But uh, I saw that in in the winning time and, and in your book, uh, the decision the, the yeah, just after Kareem got hurt could not play in Game Six. Uh, a decision to start Magic at center and how that came about on the plane and how it was decided. Uh, how did it actually happen, I guess? Yeah, well, uh, when we, you know, what we knew Kareem wasn't coming. We knew also, talking to our doctors, uh, Dr. Carlin was the, the head uh, doctor then. He said that Kareem's injury, uh, he it's impossible for him to play in game six and probably not in game seven. Um when I did get on the plane, I wasn't sure which direction we were going to go. And Magic was sitting in Kareem's seat uh, and smiling like everything's going to be okay, folks. Uh, I did, during the flight, make the decision to start Kareem at center. Uh, I talked it over with uh, Dr. Buss. Uh, he didn't say no, but he said, oh, that's interesting. That, that was one of his ways that he wasn't... Uh, sure, like uh, if you start Magic and we lose, remember, you're the one who did this. Uh, but uh, we were all in agreement, and sure enough, come game time, we're going to start uh, Magic at center. I do remember in a huddle, uh, one of our big power forwards, Jim Jones, who was a seven-footer and a big, strong, tough guy, said, Coach, I'm jumping, right? Because it would be logical that he would do that. I said, no. Magic's going to jump because we're going to show the Sixers uh, something different tonight. And Magic went out and jumped center, and that. But he played every position. That's okay. That's and, okay. And then one, yeah. one more question That's okay. is, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. So then, in the uh, uh, at the end of the game. You really, I mean, the movie yeah. made you seem like great. I mean, because you actually, like, Magic was tired. He was exhausted. Riley, you know, said you were, you know, losing in the, whatever, whatever that motivated him. But in terms of getting your team saying, look, we've been running, running, running. I know that the lead is now down, but we're going to, you know, finish the game out strong. You went on that huge run at the end of the game, winning one at 123 to 107. And I guess that was, you know, Magic played the 47 minutes. 
it was it was that, I mean, what did you do? Was that true? Like, what did you do to make sure, you know, after the Sixers made that run, it looked like the Sixers were going to take control of the game to make that, uh, to make your run at the end? Uh, just don't take your stars out. <laughs> so, uh, Kareem was, was already in Los Angeles, so uh, Magic's going to play about every minute he could. And, and something, uh, I don't know if they make a big thing of it, but we should make a big thing. Uh, Magic was terrific in that game, 42 points and uh, rebounds and assists. But Jamal Wilkes had 37 points. You know, we couldn't have probably won that game without a great offensive game from Jamal Wilkes. They don't. They don't make. They don't mention. They don't make that more. They should probably in that. I, I mean, I just watched it. And, you know, I read, read, read your, reread your book and I watched Winning Time before we did our interview, but they didn't really make an issue about Wilkes on that. So, um, but, I mean, that and was... Even, even Brad Holland had his career high, like 14 points in that game. So we had a lot of people who were stepping in and playing uh, above their game. And then, you know, the movie does, Winning Time mentions, and you throughout your book talk about Jerry West and how Jerry West involvement with the team. And, and it was interesting. And what was your, you know, your, your interaction with Jerry West in real life, not the movie life. What were your interactions with him? Like, yeah, I, you know, my interactions with Jerry West were very limited. Uh, actually, when I showed up as the assistant coach, uh, there was the head coaching office. This is in the forum. There was another little office with two desks and two chairs, and it was for three people. It was for me as the assistant coach. It was for Jerry West as consultant, and it was for Jack Curran, the trainer. Well, Curran would come up occasionally. He spent most of his time in the training room. I was there, you know, almost every day. And Jerry West, rarely. So we never had a problem who was going to sit at the desk because two of the three people weren't ever in the office in the desk. So uh, West's involvement with me in particular and Jack McKinney uh, was very limited. And, and that's to his credit. I mean, he was the former coach, so he wasn't, he wasn't hanging around looking over his shoulder what McKinney was doing or what I was doing, he was, you know, kind of, he stepped back and he was, he would consult with Jerry Buss, but not every day with the team. That didn't happen. So we've been talking to Paul Westhead, uh, author of the book, The Speed Game, uh, as former NBA championship coach winner. Also, the, the history we went through on your last interview, all the different jobs you've taken. But I wanted to focus on the Lakers and talk about this time. But I really appreciate it. And I tell you, I know so many people watch Winning Time. And if you watched it and enjoyed it, buy the book. Order the book. It is a really great book. <laughs> and it goes into detail. And it sort of gives you, you know, I said, and it's still, it's exciting to read. So I really encourage people. I hope your book sales have improved since the, since the TV show coach yeah that's a good question I, I i don't really know i only find out they let me know about once a year so uh that my year isn't up yet but uh, uh yeah maybe it's gotten better so again I, I know that you've taken some time i really appreciate you coming on iron sports and i'm sure and i appreciate it for you again coming on our show yeah and make sure you say hi to fran dumpy he's he's a terrific guy i mean he's a great coach but he's He's a terrific person. Uh, I know him from the neighborhood. I don't know, Coach. We might have to come and help him out a little this year. So you might even hear come move over to Philadelphia. But uh, no, I was uh, I was surprised that he you know left retirement and, and came back to coaching. But you know he loves to coach. He loves the game. And uh, and, and as I said, I, I agree with you. He's a much better person than he is coaching. He's one of the best coaches. So tremendous person. Yep. Great stuff there, Paul West. Said, Ira, what are you doing this week? I'm going to go Wednesday, Stanley Cup Finals. So it'll only be my second Stanley Cup Finals game. That'll be good. And then Thursday, I'll be the NBA draft. So we're going to run out of sport of it. So I have to go some baseball. And, and I know that we're, people have said, wait, we're, does Ira not follow baseball anymore? Well, I think next week we're going to have Bobby Valentine, former mm -hmm. Mets manager, Ranger manager on. So we're looking to have, we're going to definitely spend, we have another two months to, for football season to come to spend a lot of time talking about baseball. We're out of time. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, Ira on Sports.